You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. And we have returned with part two of our interview with Sebastian de Castell. And I'll tell you what, if last week was the business, this week is the party. Yes, our show was a mullet. Last week, we had a chance to chat with Sebastian about his first two books. He's working on book number three right now. Um, and this week, we've... Uh, basically just got a bunch of hijinks. He, he uh, had a lot of fun on our show. He actually kind of flipped the script. He started to interview us, uh, started playing live Celtic Whistle. We talked about sword porn. Uh, we had an awesome, amazing lightning round. And this is probably one of the funnest episodes I think we've recorded to date, Philip. Oh, yeah, for sure. And to clarify, sword porn is uh, just looking at pictures of swords. Yes. So, so, so please don't. Please don't read into that further. Right. I mean, like on Reddit, there's um, there's shitty food porn, you know. Oh, shitty food porn. Yeah, pictures of just terrible food, like spaghetti oh. sandwiches and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, sword porn is just going online and looking at delicious swords and, and <laughs> admiring them. But uh, Sebastian is a fencer in addition to his repertoire of other skills. So uh, definitely some cool sword conversation to be had. But we're not going to waste any time because, frankly, this is kind of a long part two. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. We hope you enjoy it. And be sure to read Trader's Blade and Knight's Shadow. Here is part two of our conversation with Sebastian DeCastell. Enjoy. One of the things that you've been uh, noted for in your writing is your uh, quick-witted dialogue. Um, where have you gotten inspirations for your uh, witty dialogue, would you say? Well, I come from a family of people that when when you're sitting around together around the dinner table or really any table they would happily cut off their own finger in order to get in the the cleverest remark and, and i'm not saying that we're good at it i'm just saying that people <laughs> in my family were really prone to sort of like wanting to sound clever um and i i sort of don't know where that came from but you can see the uh that kind of bantering in in lots of families and and in lots of contexts so we we see it in politics we see it in 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 all kinds of aspects of daily life and i think it's because you know language is is not only one of the ways that we communicate with each other but it's one of the ways in which we define the world around us right and when people are trying to win an exchange in terms of you know saying the clever thing or, or or recontextualizing what's just been said, it's it's actually a way of trying to define reality for everyone around you. So, so there's kind of an appeal for me of of you know being clever enough to do that. I once got into this huge uh, debate with um, a group of friends. One of my friends, she's you know really smart. And she's she's really into physics, and she started talking about dark matter. And I was just trying to be kind of a jerk. So I started talking about dark numbers. So dark numbers are these numbers in mathematics that don't exist, but we can infer that they exist by the absence of, of certain measurable quantities in mathematics. Now, of course, there's no such thing as dark numbers, but it kind of sounds like it could be a thing, right? Yeah. So, I, I did, so we got into this debate where I was trying to prove that dark matter didn't exist and dark numbers did. <laughs> um, and, and with a group of all college-educated people, I was, I was able to win the argument, which is a totally sad testament to how ignorant I am as a human. But, <laughs> but, it, was, uh, but it just it kind of shows you like how much of our notion of reality is shaped by how something sounds both how clever someone sounds, but just how intuitive, how, how we can make language turn different ideas into things that are more or less intuitive. It's, you know, 
it's one of the things that's that's a huge problem in the world now because as human beings we finally you know we've reached the point in sci- in our understanding of science our understanding of the universe where things are no longer common sense like you know something like uh, you know gravity makes sense you could describe gravity and it actually matches our intuition of the world but quantum physics you know doesn't uh, even climate change you know doesn't isn't very intuitive, you know, like if the earth is warming, then why is it suddenly freezing over here? And, um, and so it's this huge challenge. So, so I'm kind of fascinated with the, with the ways in which people kind of use language almost as a bit of a weapon sometimes. But in terms of where I learned that from, uh, some of it, you know, some of the best dialogue these days happens on television. And so, you know, one of my favorite writers is Aaron Sorkin. Who's a, he's a television writer. He was a playwright before. He wrote The West Wing. He's a great writer. Yeah, he, he's fantastic. And he, he writes these brilliant exchanges uh, between people. He's, he's not afraid to write dialogue that is almost a hyper, uh, it's an enhanced reality of dialogue because generally none of us speak that well on command. But he's not afraid to use that as a, as a dramatic tool. And so he, he writes great sort of exchanges. He writes great speeches. And in fact, you know, Falchio as a character, you know, it, it's kind of a running joke amongst the people, amongst his closest friends in the books that, you know, they'll periodically stop right before a fight and say, so are, are you going to give a speech now or can we get to it? <laughs> and sometimes, uh, so sometimes I'll, I'll actually, speeches I think are a really wonderful source for, for fantasy writers uh, because um, very often fantasy is dealing with the, the biggest dramatic moments in a novel are often the point where kind of a speech is delivered in a sense, you know, like it's, oh my God, we're facing the enemy army of whatever and we're about to, you know, go to war and and the reader really wants that moment of of the, you know, the, the good guys or what, whichever side the reader happens to be on then basically saying to the other, you know, the other army, like, all right, you may be, you know, bigger than us and you've got more weapons than us, but, you know, fuck you, you know, we're going, <laughs> we're, we're, you're the worst people ever. And so if you trace back to some of the great speeches in history, um, you know, the Periclean speech to the Athenians, right? Or, or if you take Shakespeare, right, the St. Crispin's Day speech, there's these wonderful speeches that are just, they're, they're some of the most masterful pieces of writing that we have. And so also, so, you know, if you read some of the speeches in the, in the Great Coats books, which you know, they, they, they generally aren't very long, obviously, because I'm not, you know, probably nobody wants to read a 20-page speech from me. But sometimes I draw from some of those elements. You know, there's a speech at the end of um, Night Shadow that has some parallels with elements of the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. It, it turns it on its head, but it's but I'm inspired by that. When I first started reading Trader's Blade, I noticed immediately the dialogue was just like, snap, 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 which is great for me. So I think sometimes uh, I get fantasy fatigue. That's what I call it. When I read too much fantasy, that's kind of the same style. So it's I like that I'm seeing more fantasy writers that are more dialogue-driven, and you kind of get us right into the world you know, there's not a lot of exposition or anything like that. So the snappy dialogue is definitely one of my favorite things and to see in fantasy fiction, especially because I think uh, other genres like thrillers and uh, like uh, mysteries and stuff, they, they rely heavily on dialogue also. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we've seen that as much until recently where dialogue is becoming more of a like a snappy thing. It's it's huge for me because I'm I'm pretty influenced by a lot of the by some of the noir 
uh, writers like uh, Raymond Chandler, right? He wrote The Big Sleep and Farewell, My Lovely and all these kind of these books. And, and man, the dialogue is so snappy, right? Like the dialogue is it's the dialogue is a sword fight for those guys and and also the descriptions have this kind of they're brief but they're all emotionally driven you know and so i like that a lot it's you know i I read less fantasy now that i write fantasy and it's not because i don't still love fantasy and there's so many good writers out right now i'm I'm reading uh, john gwynn right now who wrote you know the malice and the the faithful and the fallen series and um you know there's there's tons of great guys you know joe abercrombie and all these guys are fantastic but i always feel like as a writer probably most of my readers read a lot of fantasy and you know if i'm going to do something for them if i'm going to make my books as good as i can for them one of the ways i can do that is by trying to bring in things that i can draw from from other genres so i tend to bring in a lot of you know dialogue from from more dramatic and and comedic driven uh, you know, television, for example, I tend to try to bring in some a- aspects of prose and, and character development from some of the literary fiction that I read. And I'm not trying to sound like a snob, like, hey, I, you know, I have trouble <laughs> getting through an A.S. Byatt novel, you know, just like everyone else. And, 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 and her novels are terrific, but I'm, I'm, you know, but basically if there isn't a sword fight in 10 pages, you know, it's, it's work for me to keep going. But I just find that drawing those other influences in can can just give it a little flavor. And it, it's funny when when I got the book deal for uh, the Great Coat series, I asked both the publisher Joe Fletcher from Joe Fletcher Books, which is a imprint of Quirkus, which is a part of Hodder and Stoughton, which is part of Hachette, which you know <laughs> they're all parts of the company. But but she's this inc- you know if you if you've never if you if you haven't encountered Joe Fletcher, she's one of the top editors in fantasy and science fiction and horror in, in the world. She edited Terry Pratchett, she's edited Neil Gaiman, she's edited like all these guys. And I said, like, you know, why why did you buy the series? Like, what was it that kind of drew you to buying it? And she said it was the voice. She really liked the voice. And I didn't sort of understand really what that meant until partly, you know, t- the time I got to the times I've, I've gotten to work with her, and and just as I go back and forth between reading more fantasy, that that I think it's one of the things that people are kind of craving is they just want a slightly different voice. It's exactly like what you were saying, uh, Phil, that, that, you know, you, you don't want to pick up the next fantasy novel uh, and have the voice be the same as the one you just put down. That's one reason I love this push towards having more diverse characters in fantasy and science fiction. I think it's really great to see more characters that are from different backgrounds, different races, different genders, the human experience is just so much and like I think fantasy as a genre should be cracked wide open because there's just so much stuff you could do with fantasy. So it's always really awesome to me to, to hear about, you know, someone's writing about a series about uh, in Africa, in the desert in Africa, or someone's writing about Ken Liu wrote, uh, I think his is influenced by ancient China. The something of kings, right? Grace of kings. Grace, Grace, of, kings. Grace of kings. Yeah. yeah. Your series definitely has a different flavor. Uh, you know, you know, it's not. Uh, it wasn't like dudes in armor sitting in a bar uh, about to go kill somebody. Like I, I love the opening. You think it's going to be this, and then it kind of shifts. So I really love that opening. It's very cool to see different stuff like that. Yeah, it's funny that opening was uh, was really tricky because it breaks like three different rules. That, that you know you read about in, in all the books on writing these days and you just hear people always saying never start with this and never you know begin with this and and I kind of begin with all three of them so uh, 
but it's but it's funny because like you say you know you don't like books that start with a ton of exposition but but actually there is exposition um in the opening for for traders but that's where that's where things like dialogue you know can be really powerful because if you're you know if the characters are kind of ping-ponging back and forth with the the banter and if it's funny and if it's spiky enough then you can actually get in a little bit of what the reader needs to know to come into the story without it feeling like as you know the (laughs) the conquerors came you know 560 years ago and you know you can kind of get around those problems a little bit because it's funny everybody everyone trashes info dumping in, in fantasy and science fiction but a certain amount of of exposition is unavoidable if you want to make an interesting world. And I, I'm kind of lucky because, you know, basically Tristia, the, the world of the great, co- the, the, the country that the great coats are set in, you know, has enough parallels with sort of a Renaissance Italy mixed with a, a late medieval England and, and, and a bit of, um, you know, sort of early modern France, like jammed together, that um, there's enough familiarity that I don't have to introduce what every single word means. Getting back to what you were saying, like that's that's one of the challenges. Like that's why a lot of those books that have more diversity in them are actually much better written books than than most of what we get to read because those guys, especially when they're bringing something to a more traditionally Western biased audience, they're having to introduce you to so many concepts and and words and languages and people and cultures, and they're not getting to just go look. Hey, it's just like the Middle Ages, right? You know. <laughs> yeah, you know the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's easier for them. But yeah, and and in terms of my own writing, like for me, uh, you know, I, I'm writing in a sort of a European centric world, but I I'm trying to write from a, a somewhat different perspective. Partly because I I hate knights so much. Um, you know, I, the whole like knights in armor thing really bugs the hell out of me. So because you know they weren't right. I mean they weren't they. I mean they were in armor, but they weren't good guys. You know, like by and large they were like big horrible thugs that that went around taking what they wanted and. We have like, you know, William Marshall was a pretty good guy. You know, he was called the flower of chivalry, but he was absolutely the exception to the rule. So, so that's kind of where I come from in my writing. But, but I, it is nice to see so much. Uh, there's, there's a lot of diversity just on the on the on the Joe Fletcher books list that I'm on. I mean, there's, you know, Stephanie Salter and and um, Naomi Foyle and and all these people that are writing really interesting stuff that that just, as you say, cracks the genre wide open. Do you ever find yourself at, at points just saying, curse you, Brian Stavely? <laughs> you know, I, I want it. I really wanted to. Uh, <laughs> uh, you mean because he won the Gemmel? Yeah, he, he edged or, it out just slightly. Or as the three of us will agree, he stole the Stole gimmel. the Gemmel, right, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the drag of that is, he's like the nicest guy. Um, <laughs> you know, he, when, when the Gemmels were nominated, he started reading people's books on the list because he's a classy guy, and he, he started raving about how much he was enjoying Trader's Blade, and so we struck up a conversation, and so we're we're you know Facebook pals now, and um, so I was I was kind of glad for him. I, I mean, there were so many good people on that. I was so happy to be on that shortlist because you know you've got Cameron Hurley on that list, and you know she's amazing, and and um, and Brian Stavely's book is huge in in North America, like he's doing really well. And there's just a lot of good writers on the list, so um, I was really happy. I was I was like there at the ceremony because. I think it's important to lose in person. Uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you, the only thing that really hurt was they just created a new statue for the award. And it's so cool. And I'm staring at the statue and I, and I, you know, and then, and then they announced Brian's name and I'm like, you know what? 
he's not here and I'm pretty fast. <laughs> like, I think I can make it to that. Cause you know, the nice thing about fantasy people is they're, they're not super fit usually. So, so I'm like, I think I can get to that podium and I think I can grab it and get out of there fast enough uh, and keep it because, because you know the everybody comes up to you afterwards and they say, oh, you know what? But next year for sure, next year you'll you'll win the legend award. And it's like, yeah, but I want that one. Like that's I won't be able to get that statue. So, but I was happy for Brian because he's a good guy. He's a really great writer. So, uh, so it worked out. Yeah, yeah. Brian's actually one of the first guys that was a traditionally published writer that I connected with on Google Plus a while back. I started kind of chatting with him a bit on there. And uh, I was like, wow, that's cool. Like, usually, <laughs> I, I just imagine, like, traditionally published writers in a tower somewhere, and they don't. But, um, yeah, he was really open and cool and talked to me about Japan and stuff like that. So, Oh, cool. Yeah, he's a cool guy. You know, mo- most, I mean, all the writers I've met in this genre have, have been really nice guys. Like I, I mean, I haven't I haven't met the guys that are sort of more on the sad puppies kind of realm of things. So I don't know, you know, because those guys usually are a little bit more angry about stuff. But but all all the folks I've met, like Story Christian Snorri Christensen, uh, you know, writes um, Swords of Good Men, and and um, John Gwynn, and you know, they're super nice guys, and and they love talking to people who are just interested in in fantasy. I mean, the reality is, as as writers. In, in a way, we're more sort of just explorers. Like, we're people who love fantasy, too. And we're just, like, trying to go out and find, like, more of it. And, you know, we have ideas, and so we'll, like, write it and then bring it out. But it's only really interesting to publish a book when people are reading it and, and when you're finding out that you're hopefully tapping into the same thing that they're tapping into. And that's, you know, like, as much as the great coats are about swashbuckling and banter and stuff like that, they're also about a kind of romanticism around the world, uh, you know, around around what we can be as people and, and how you deal with with the problems of the world. And so sometimes when people are connecting to that, it's because they're they're people like me, right? Like we're we're all tapping into the we're all into that same thing. So so I think it, you know, I mean, I love it when I get an email from somebody who's a fan of the book. I'm just like I'm thrilled, you know. I'm less thrilled when I get an email. It's like I've never read your book, but could you please promote mine? <laughs> and that's one thing I've noticed uh, doing the podcast too is um, the the authors and everybody in the community is pretty outgoing and willing to talk to you and have a conversation and and it's just a great community to to be a part of and and uh, I'm enjoying it for sure. Yeah, I think for me doing the podcast is is better than Twitter. I know a lot of people like Twitter to connect with authors, but I've connected with so many authors doing this podcast. Like everybody should just get a podcast and get as many authors on as possible <laughs> to, <laughs> to connect with them. Make this the new Twitter. <laughs> just talking to authors directly. There's not really such a thing as connecting on on Twitter. You know, you can you can follow people and people can follow you and you can send each other 140 character witticisms. But it's not it's not a conversation. I mean, maybe some people are just better at it than I am. But as you can tell, I'm, I'm pretty verbose. Like someone asked me what I had for dinner last night and I, I basically have to go into a tale of, you know, the Battle of Stalingrad to <laughs> create context. So you're absolutely right. And I think podcasts are great. And, you know, the, the reality is especially for writers, because I'm coming at this from a very particular spot, right? I, I was really lucky. I, I had a, I had a good debut. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not at the, I'm not in the, the Brandon Sanderson bestseller sort of zone and, and I may never be. Um, but I was, but I was lucky. My, my books launched pretty well. And, and, you know, I, that means I'm able to make a living as a writer. 
And the only reason that that is, is because enough people in the community of not just people that are reading, but people who write about fantasy books and people who do podcasts about fantasy books, like those people kind of got interested. And that's kind of what we need more of is, for want of a better word, sort of tastemakers, you know, people who find stuff that's really cool. And then they go out to the rest of the world and say, this stuff's really cool. Because that's the only way for a, a new author to sort of break out, right? So basically, without you guys, you know, and and the folks that, that whose tradition you're joining, of of people who write and talk about about books that they love, uh, there there just wouldn't be a, f- a fantasy genre. And I would be very sad if that ever happened. Yeah. Well, you start reading romance novels, it'll be okay. <laughs> I wouldn't be a sad puppy, but I'd be sad. <laughs> yeah. Be a sad kitty, maybe. Yeah. Sad little kitty. I think that one's taken too now, eh? Sad koala. Oh, man. You know what? You should start the... It doesn't matter that none of us are Australian. I think we should, like, like coin that as the Australian sad puppies group. <laughs> sad koalas. Sad koalas. <laughs> Sick of too much uh, Aboriginal characters in Australian <laughs> science fiction and fantasy. God. Oh, man. I'm glad, that's a, I'm glad that mess is over. At least for now-ish. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Can I, you know what the Sad Puppies really was, though? What that whole thing was? And I, I'm not trying to diss any of those guys, but just looking at it externally, it was the worst live-action role-playing game I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I could not make, like, I, I could not make sense of the fucking races and the character classes. <laughs> because, because SJW, like Social Justice Warrior, sounds like a character class. But it was used as a race a lot of the time. But then there's the other races that's like gammas and alphas. Yeah, it was just really weird. It was just a very poorly designed live action role play. <laughs> well, I saw a vampire one, vampire live action role play one time, and I'd have to measure up those two. <laughs> it was it was pretty fucking horrific. I'm I'm telling you, I, I it's it just does not look like fun. And I know I it's it's probably fun for a few people, but I felt bad for a lot of people who who got sucked into that whole fiasco because uh, some people are in it voluntarily. Like some people, you know, the people are pissed off in one direction or the other, and and they're often volunteers to to get involved in that. But um, but there are a lot of people whose names just get dragged into it who who aren't really trying to be part of that. You know, they're just trying to do what we're all trying to do, trying to write the best stories we can, be as honest about, you know, in terms of our voice and our writing as we can, hoping that we are going to connect with people you know who who like to read what we like to write so sorry that sounded a little bit preachy i take it all back <laughs> sad koalas 2060 sad koalas so you guys both write so what do you write let's let's flip the interview oh okay oh, oh okay um well what i'm doing is it's called splatter elf i've plugged it on this show uh, several times, Countless so people times. probably people think I'm a s- spammer or something. <laughs> but since you asked, <laughs> I uh, did ask. It's kind of like a parody of over the top fantasy uh, style. Lots of blood, lots of violence, lots of cursing. It's supposed to be so dark, it's ridiculous. It's kind of inspired by uh, stuff like Metalocalypse, the Adult Swim show, and 80s cartoons, and kind of over-the-top 80s action movies. So it's kind of my take on you know taking fantasy and doing the old Spinal Tap thing and amping it to 11. I have a lot of kind of over-the-top action, over-the-top characters, and some, some people have 
I've gotten some good reviews and people have said uh, they kind of get what I'm doing. And then, you know, there's always, I guess there's always going to be people that don't get it. So that's what I kind of like about it is that you're either going to really, really like it or you're really, really going to hate it. So I like that feeling that it's not, people aren't going to go, eh, it was okay. They're either going to go, that fucking sucked or they're going to go, that was pretty cool. (laughs) So. Oh, right on. Right on. Yeah, well, you know, so you're not writing middle of the road. You're not, not writing an after-school special, as we call it, in the film <laughs> Try not to. Cool. And Rob, what are you writing? Um, I'm more of a traditional fantasy. I'm definitely going for a, a, a grimdark fantasy uh, tale at this point, um, trying to use the, the heavier elements and kind of the tropes um, in fantasy. I'm still a, a work in progress. I don't think I'm as uh, learned as Philip, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm learning the craft and uh, just, you know, writing every day to perfect it more and more. Uh, but uh, eventually, I, I think I'd like to start with maybe publishing some short fiction uh, in some e-zines or some uh, other publications, maybe, and uh, eventually start working on a novel but uh yeah i'm just more of a traditional fantasy um i definitely want to maybe break out a little more and try some other genres like sci-fi or horror as well but grimdark fantasy i think is what i'm going for right now the first the first book i ever wrote was a mystery novel called uh, skeletons in the cloister which my agent says we can sell because it's a good name uh <laughs> unfortunately it doesn't have a very good book to back it up <laughs> um, but one day i'm determined to rewrite it but but it's funny just because you were talking about writing a different genre and it is freeing sometimes to write in a different genre a little bit because you're not kind of crushing yourself under the weight of of all of the like, things people say like you know you have to make everything completely different from anything that's come before and you know all of that stuff that that we tend to you know self-censor with so so yeah it's a good idea to play around with with everything i'm kind of influenced by anime also so i'm thinking my first novel is going to be called a berserker maid and it's going to be about uh, like a Jap- like a Japanese style maid that is a berserker and she goes crazy and she has lots of swords. And uh, so I may need to hit you up about swords since you know a lot more about swords than I do. Sure. So I want to have just something totally batshit crazy for my first <laughs> novel. So it's uh, sorry, berserker maid. Is yeah, berserker maid. Yeah, I, that's I, what I, I'm... I want to suggest a slight modification to add the subtitle. Okay. So berserker maid, a romance. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. There you go. Because no one will be quite as offended as someone who thinks they're about to read an elven romance. <laughs> I was just going to say, do you ever find yourself online just kind of looking at sword porn? Just like, oh, that is a nice looking sword right there. Just you know, I, Google image search. Just that's kinda. a nice looking sword. I, I, I used to, but 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 not so much anymore because it's been years since I've been fencing and, and even uh, years since I've been choreographing sword fights. So. You know, what, what kind of turns my crank is, is drama, right? So I'm always looking for – so what kind of grabs me is, is anything where I can really feel the, the, the drama of it. And um, sorry, that sounds like a snobbish answer, but, <laughs> but it, it's sort of true, you know, because I guess – so I, I never run into the problem where I'm like, oh, you know, as a writer, oh, I need, to, I need a different cool type of sword. You know, I'll, I'll have a sword with seven different blades on it or something. <laughs> Uh, but although the, hey, the sword of seven blades, I think has to show up in uh, in Berserker Maid. <laughs> yeah, you know, like remember those pens they used to have, like the colored pens when you're in school. Oh yeah, yeah. Like the really expensive ones you could push down the little knobs and you got a different color pen. We need a sword like that. It needs to have a crazy name though, like a Sept Septagard Narian or something. <laughs> Septagard, yeah. Uh, uh, what would it be? Yeah, Septa. Yeah, you need a Latin word for blade. I don't know what the Latin word is.
It's funny, like, you know, so you're both writers, so you're going to find this, you know, at some point you're going to, you know, you're going to be writing your bio and you're going to be putting your books out and, some, and a publicist is going to get involved and they're going to go through this amazing process of synecdoche where they're going to turn your whole life down into like one thing you did. And <laughs> so when, when traders came out and, and they're right to, they have to, because you're like, how, why is anyone going to care about this guy, Sebastian DeCastello, we've never heard of? And it's like, oh, he's a sword guy. And you're like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, you suddenly become sword guy for a while. Hey, sword uh -huh. guy. Hey, sword guy. I know. And it's funny because I know a lot of guys uh, and, and women who are actually sword people. So for them, it's like, I just know that Trader's Blade and like the great coats. Like I intentionally didn't ever use any historically accurate sword fighting names or, or elements in there. Um, cause I always, cause it's funny, like Princess Bride's like one of my favorite movies, uh, as it is for a lot of us who like, who like fantasy. But the, the, even when I was a kid and I saw that movie, there's this moment where, you know they're they're talking about all the different names of so the sword the the sword masters that they're you know drawing from right uh, Capoferro and Agrippa and all these guys, and I always thought it was like the snobbiest thing to do, like so pedantic to throw in the names of actual, you know, famous you know sword masters. So I so in mine I was like nope I'm I'm pulling out everything so it's, there's it's only accurate dramatically not uh, not literally, and. Um, so I know that when people sort of refer to me as like, you know, sword guy, uh, <laughs> probably probably there's a whole bunch of people out there who are really serious, you know, Western martial arts kind of aficionados who, you know, throw up in their mouths. But it's funny because sometimes I've been asked to give a couple of workshops and, and uh, you know, talks on, on how do you write a sword fight. And, and I have a whole process for explaining that. But one of the first things I have to do is like get people to stop thinking about that, that somehow a, a historically accurate sword fight is going to be a dramatically interesting sword fight. Mm. Because, you know, if you watch a fencing match, it doesn't look like what you would hope it would look like. It's, it's why I always try to show people um, a, a clip from Princess Bride and a clip from The Duelists, because they're two radically different styles of portraying a fight scene. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer to probably yeah. a simple question. You just wanted me to say, yeah, I look at sword porn all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally look at it. <laughs> Did you take that promo shot where you're holding out the sword to the camera with your... Uh shirt unbuttoned for the book or did that already exist before Trader's Blade came out? That's that, that's old, that photo. The, um, yeah, it's a problem with the internet, right? Every <laughs> stupid thing you ever do is out there forever. So when I was, um, when I was choreographing sword fights, uh, I was also acting and uh, I had to do some actor photos and they're so dreadfully dull, um, most of these things, that at one point I was, I was actually, I was literally, I was getting undressed because we were done. And then at the last second, I, I said, oh, let's just, you know, could we get a couple with the sword? So I took these um, really arrogant looking photos with the sword with my shirt. I hadn't remembered to button it up properly. <laughs> um, and so that became my look. And so it's funny because I, I cropped the photo so that it's a square because then it doesn't look like I'm a total prat. <laughs> but somehow I think my German publishers got hold of the original photo. And so in the German edition of the book, and they're beautiful books. Piper Verlag puts out these beautiful German editions of the, of the Great Coats books. But on the inner flap is this huge shot of me. <laughs> And not only is the shirt open and the whole thing, but but they airbrushed my face so that I look like I'm wearing makeup. Like whoever that guy is looks pretty good looking. It's just not necessarily what I 
you know, really look like. So, yeah. So thanks for bringing up what is a very That's grim tidings. What can we say? This is yeah. the grim part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're pretty grim. Author photos are weird things, man. That photo's kind of old, but yeah, it's haunting me now. I remember <laughs> when I was, I was teaching at Vancouver Film School, and um, the first time I started teaching there, my students Googled me, and all of a sudden they found all these photos of, of me in, in, the, in the neurotics, which is the band with the wigs and the crazy suits. And like, you know, printing out these life-size photos <laughs> of me looking like a total psychotic. So, yeah, I, I, I always tell people I'm, I'm lucky I sort of got through the early parts of adulthood before Facebook. Right. <laughs> less to regret in the future. Less, less to regret. Can we do the lightning round? Is that a possibility? Sure. So this is the lightning round. <laughs> Our nice guest. special effects budget, guys. Yeah, <laughs> we spare no expense. So this is the the Grim Tidings podcast lightning round. Today's guest is Sebastian DeCastell, and we are going to feed him uh, lines of dialogue, and he's going to reply with witty lines of dialogue because he is a master of witty dialogue. So he's going to answer as quickly and as wittily as possible, and if he answers the questions to our satisfaction, he will win a month's supply of Celtic Whistle Lessons. <laughs> So, Brian, or I almost called you Brian Staveley. How awful is that? <laughs> I'm, not, Man, I'm not Brian Staveley. This really is a grim podcast. <laughs> so, Sebastian. <laughs> okay. Sebastian DeCastell, are you ready for the lightning round? I am. I'm still not sure I understand it, but I think that might be a good thing. Just go with yes. it. Just feel it. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. so, I'll say a line of dialogue, and then you respond the best way possible. Okay. Okay, number one. Oh, shit, I broke my sword. I have a bad piece of news for you. That wasn't your sword. <laughs> that wasn't very good. That was good. That's a start. We're getting more. That's a start. That was a little awkward, but I'll get there. Okay. Number two. Oh, shit, I broke my fingernail. Ow, ow, get it out of my nose. <laughs> number three. Oh, shit. I broke his leg. Bad news. That was not his leg. <laughs> Number four. Where are all these cats coming from? Those aren't cats. They're not coming here. They're actually just bits of hair that you're shedding right now. Because <laughs> I'm so fucking hairy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Number five. Where is all this blood coming from? Well... Count the number of orifices on your body, because I think it's coming from all of them. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, number six. Where are all these crabs coming from? If you'd put your underwear back on, maybe they would stop. <laughs> <laughs> number seven. I, I totally wrote this before, so don't think I just made this up right now. Sure. Number seven. That's a sick bass line, bro. That's not a bass line. That's a poem to the gods, written in the language of bass, the language that the universe itself speaks at the moment of its climax. See, you are a bass player. <laughs> no, but we've all had to play with bass players, and you know how they need to justify themselves. That's true. Yeah. Number eight, that's a sick ponytail, bro. Okay, see, that's totally unrealistic because no one's ever said that. <laughs> 
That's your response? <laughs> that is my response. That is the exact line of dialogue that would appear counter to that. That is a line that, if it was in a book, would cause the editor to break the fourth wall and <laughs> insert that text. Okay. And the last one, and I totally, again, didn't... I, I, I wrote this beforehand. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. If this is a... if This, this being the Grim Tidings podcast dedicated to grimdark fiction, the correct response to the phrase, my name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, the correct response would be, You'll have to be more specific. I kill a lot of people's fathers. <laughs> ah, <laughs> brilliant! So many, so many dead fathers. So many dead fathers. So many cats and crabs and broken legs and dead fathers. Open shirts and Celtic whistles. Yeah, open, o- open shirt, Celtic whistle. That's the title <laughs> of my first album. <laughs> open shirt, Celtic whistle. Uh, the album. Yeah. You know what the cover of that record's going to look like. <laughs> so that ends the lightning round. Yay! Yay. You made it. Sebastian, I you survived. win a, a month's supply of Celtic Whistle lessons. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's, it's going to really help. Uh, when readers are wondering why the next Great Coats book is entirely filled with references to Celtic Whistle, <laughs> they can go back to this podcast to find its origins. <laughs> Just think how many great things we've launched here today, guys. There's, we've launched the Australian anti-diversity fiction campaign known as the uh, Sad Koalas. We've launched the um, Celtic Whistle kind of uh, s- murder spree. And, um, and we've launched the new requirement that all authors must, uh, in their author photos, have their shirts open and hold something. <laughs> oh, mission accomplished. People ask where culture comes from, and clearly it comes from here. Yeah, we've started it. Yeah. Right. Grassroots here. Well, Sebastian DeCastell, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. Book three is forthcoming in spring. That's right. Spring 2016. And then the first Spellslinger book comes out uh, towards the end of 2016. Wonderful. Well, you've got a very busy schedule ahead. Lots of writing to be done, so we will not keep you much longer at all. For folks who want to find you online, where can we hook up with you on social media? You can find me at uh, on Twitter at, at DeCastell, so at... Uh, D-E-C-A-S-T-E-L-L. You can find me from my website, which is just decastel.com. And you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sebastian DeCastel. Or you can Google search Swordfighter with Open Shirt. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that works, but that would be terrible if it did, eh? Yeah, it's worth a try. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's been great having you on the show, sir. Uh, best of luck with the Great Coats Quartet series and your new series as well. And uh, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. You're also officially now the longest the longest we've talked to a guest. So thank you very much for talking to us for such a long time. My pleasure. Um, Enjoy editing just, that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have one final request. Sure. Usually at the end of the uh, show, we... We play heavy metal music, and it's like, and then I always go, fuck you, at the end. Yeah. So could you play the Celtic whistle, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go, fuck you, over the Celtic whistle. Here we go. Fuck you. So you want you want you want it all the way through? You want me to cut the Celtic whistle so you can say fuck you? No, all the way through, yeah. Okay. 
You know, by the way, that I'm like the worst Celtic whistle player on the fucking planet. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, like, you're, awesome. you're gonna get like so many people telling you how bad that was. <laughs> get mobbed by a bunch of Celtic whistle purists. Holy shit, that was uh, an exciting part two of our conversation with Sebastian Dickestel. Plenty of hijinks to be had, plenty of Celtic whistle. Philip and I are currently working on getting our Celtic whistle band together. Forthcoming projects. Uh, watch this space um, because it's going to be pretty, pretty epic. Um, Sebastian has indeed refused to play bass Celtic whistle. Um, so we are looking to get that spot filled. So uh, just send us a message or what have you. That's all, that, that was all lies, Rob. We're not doing any of those <laughs> things. But yes, Sebastian, great guy, funny guy, witty guy, rapier like wit, which is suiting because he is a fencer, not a fencer who sells illegal items, but the one with the sword. So thank you very much to Sebastian for being a cool guest and jumping in our wheelhouse and all that kind of shit. Thanks very much. Very cool, Sebastian, to join us, and we're looking forward to all the awesome things he has forthcoming uh, with his brand new book deal. And uh, watch what he has going on, because I think this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg of, the, of Sebastian DeCastell. And uh, thanks again, dude, for coming on the show. Sebastian was great, and he's welcome to come on the show anytime, chat with us. We'll talk about anything with him. Bros for life. Thank you for listening. Next week, we have Mazarkus Williams coming on the program. Plenty of awesome shows coming up, so be sure to visit us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast, or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Tweet, retweet, leave a review, share the show, share some love, and the Grim Dark Empire will continue to expand. Throat punch. To the face. Well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, throat punch to the face. <laughs> Until next time. Uh... Until Until next time, stay grim, stay dark, and stay true. Bye, everybody. Whistle solo. Curse you, Brian Stavely. After you play that, you have to point out that I said that Brian Stavely is like a super nice guy and I'm glad he... (laughs) Otherwise, pretty soon, the only group that will have me will be the Australian sad puppies. (laughs) (laughs)